chapter 5. First Timothy 5. We're in a section of Scripture that if you preach verse by verse, um, you would, I usually would not talk about this topic very much, except that I'm going through the Bible verse by verse, so it comes up. And I'm glad it has. I'm always glad it has. But we're talking about care for our families in 1 Timothy chapter 5. It's a long discussion with the same theme running through most of chapter 5. A long discussion about how you, we Christians, are as a church family to care for the elderly that God has brought into our church family and how that relates to you and your individual household, how you'll take care of them. It's an interesting study that will, if, you, if we get it right, if we understand what Paul's doing in this passage, I think we'll understand a great deal about what God intends for the local church, how we're supposed to be the local church. I'm a... Uh, I'm very fond of uh, John Nelson Darby and my spiritual lineage of those who have brought up pastors in my, how we came along. He would be great, great grandpa or something like that. It goes back like four generations. It goes Darby to James Hall Brooks to C.I. Schofield to Lewis Barry Chafer to Arby theme to me. That's the, that's the chain of how I got to be who I am. And uh, very definitely. And John Nelson Darby, um, if you know anything about him in popular discourse, there's a lot of slander that goes on about him. But he was one of the most prolific writers. And, uh, and I think most people that have, have a bad impression of him haven't read him. Those of us who have read him a lot have a bad impression of his writing. But we love him <laughs> because he's hard to read. But Darby, in approaching the local church and uh, basically laying the groundwork for how the Plymouth Brethren movement would work, he basically rejected, this is one of the things I don't like about it, he rejected the pastoral epistles as binding for how to conduct yourself in the local church going forward. He said these epistles are occasional for circumstances that specifically were going on in Ephesus, and they are, but, and therefore they're not really for, for today. So what would you do, Pastor Darby, if we can't, he wouldn't like to be called pastor, no pastors. Don't like that either about him, but he didn't believe in pastors. But, but he said, well, um, if you really want to do good ecclesiology, you have to go to Matthew 18, and where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, there he is with them. And that's the, lo- that's the local church. That's what makes a local church. And I think it's interesting for the dispensationalist to say, go to Matthew 18 as your ground, as your key passage for local church, since... Jesus is speaking prior to the advent, the coming of the Holy Spirit to begin the church, the body of Christ, which distinction Darby was very helpful in showing that's such an important thing. So I I think, in other words, I think he was inconsistent about this topic. And uh, that's why I think it's better to be Baptistic than Plymouth Brethren if you want to be biblical in your local church polity and ecclesiology. I think that that's why also dispensationalism has found a home in if you want to go to denominations, mostly Baptist churches, you can say, no, it's in the Bible church. Well, the Bible church in its best expression is Baptistic, meaning we don't baptize infants, we baptize believers. It's Baptistic, historically. 
and you're in New England here on the east side of Connecticut next to Rhode Island where the Baptist movement in America got started. That's, re that's, that's one reason you have a 200-year-old Baptist church here. There's not many of those in our country because the, the country's young and, and it started in Rhode Island and came this way. My point in, in all this is to say, I think, First Timothy 5 tells us through the Lord Jesus Christ and his inspiration or his de designation of the Apostle Paul inspired by the Spirit of Christ to write these things for Timothy and his occasion so that we would know how to live our lives in the body of Christ, so that we would know how to be about his business. And it touches something that's very personal here today. It touches, listen to this, it touches your sexual life. It touches your time, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money. It touches how you treat those in your household, whether they're believers or not. It touches whether you remarry. This passage we're looking at today in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 through 16. If you get this right, then you understand almost every aspect of how the local church interfaces with the local house, with your individual household. And remember that 1 Timothy is the book that tells us that the church is the household of God. It's a household composed of, of households. And we make the distinction between this body of believers and your individual household. We must. And this passage makes us do that. So let's read it together. I'll read it to you in the, in the New American Standard, and then we'll work through it some today. We're calling it the widow list. It's an interesting summary topic. But the widow list in verses 9 through 16 says, A widow is to be put on the list only if she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she's brought up children, if she's shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she's assisted those in distress, if she's devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. This is a very specific set of instructions that touch young and old. Everybody's got responsibility. Everybody has a job to do in this passage. Everyone is addressed. And interestingly, for this to work properly, the elderly have to be humble and walk with God and, and be willing to receive help and interact. The young have to be humble and walk with God and be willing to help. And to make good decisions. Now we have to understand in context in verses one through eight of chapter five, the apostle Paul is walking through how you talk to the elders when there has to be a correction. Remember last time we talked about, there was a correction that Paul had had Timothy bringing to Ephesus. He's coming in to, to write some wrongs because some things have gone sideways. Apparently Timothy was successful because at some point someone was successful because in, in, Ephesians, or in Revelation 2, the church in Ephesus is denying false doctrine. There's been some success in this church, but in chapter five, 
He says the way you're going to correct these, these elderly people is as though their elders are in your household. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, the younger women as sisters in all purity, and then honor widows indeed. And we have this whole passage, verses 3 through 8, that we looked at in some detail about the, the nature of taking care of those women whose husbands have died. Women whose husbands have died. And I want to remind you that this is primarily in Paul's writing an economic category. It's, a, it's, a, it's an economic, economic extremist situation of a person in need. A person in need who is not able to provide for her own needs. That's, where we're, that, that's what we're talking about. Now, you may be someone whose husband is deceased. You may be a woman on your own, past the age that Paul says, the golden age in, uh, in verse what uh, 9 is 60. And you may not need help. But that's, that's, a, that's a fact of the day in which we live in terms of economics. And I want you to keep that in mind. This is mostly an economic category the Apostle Paul is talking about. But so is marriage. So, so is marriage. It is a largely economic arrangement. And I don't mean that to say economics is not spiritual or something. I mean, economics is spiritual. What you do with your life and your resources is about God. But notice what he says about widows. You honor the widows indeed. It's a category of women who cannot provide for themselves and do not have younger family members to provide for them. And remember the way this passage ends. If anyone does not provide for his own and especially those in his household, that means if you young people in the work in, in your jobs with your resources, with your roof over your heads and your electricity and all that you have that you're providing for your family. If you're not providing for the elderly that are yours, that provided for you, if you don't take care of your parents, he says, you're worse than an unbeliever. You've denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. So it's the passage that, that especially talks about taking care of the elderly, but there's a right way for the elderly to conduct themselves. She who's a widow indeed, verse five of first Timothy five has fixed her hope on God. She's been left alone, meaning no children to provide for her. She's fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Remember you have work to do. You may be past the age of the work that made money, but now you are prayer artillery entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to want and pleasure is dead while she lives. What are you living for? See, we go to Epicurean when we get uh, retired. I don't have to work and, you know, I'm on my pension now and I, you know, I'm on a fixed income, but I don't really have to work for anybody. So I'll just play. This doesn't just mean sexual fulfillment, but it involves sexual fulfillment. And STDs are rampant in the retirement communities. And I know this because I have family in retirement communities that have told me, it's like, it's like junior high or, or early high school, except no, no consequences, except STDs. You can't get pregnant. And, and so this is, a, see, the word of God addresses all of us every day of our lives, every day of our lives. And see, you're dead. If you live your life for pleasure in retirement, instead of shouldering the load that God has given you, the Holy Spirit to lift. I mean, you have the spirit of God to bear witness for Christ. And the way the elderly will do that here in verse five is entreaties, prayers and entreaties night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. And then he, he says, command, not prescribe, but command these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone doesn't take care of their family, Paul keeps going back to the idea that you young are to take care of your elders that are yours. 
because there is an overarching principle of the local church family is going to take care of its own. So the idea that I'm going to shoulder some of this, I'm going to, I'm going to slough off some of the load of my parents onto the local church, Paul is, is preventing that and saying you take care of your own and everybody who's got their own widows, you provide for your own. And then if there's anyone left, that's a widow indeed, that, that there's no one to care for, the whole church, the church's proceeds, the offerings to God as worship that the church family gives, these will be used to care for these widows. And they're going to walk the line. They're going to they're be uh, 20%, not the 80%. They're going to be part of the work of the church. That's what's going on in this passage. Now, there's a couple things. It sounds fairly restrictive. There's the question of whether there's a pledge being taken in the passage in verse 9 through 16. The widows take a pledge that they won't remarry. That's, a, that's an interesting question. A couple interpretations of that. There's the question of, uh, is this where the nuns came from? The idea of nuns. The way, the way it's been developed since the medievals or even before, I have to say no, if you're going by the text. Because this is economic care for women that are godly in their walk. And therefore caring for, this, for the needs of the saints. It's, it's economic care for the widows that are godly in their walk, taking care of the, the, the saints. That's, that's not a nun, okay? That's certainly not Fräulein Maria, who at 20 is giving her life to marry Jesus or something. Absolutely not. In fact, this passage says no, not no, but double underline, absolutely not. No, that's not your calling. And what I feel called, well, welcome to mysticism. That's not what the scriptures teach about this life. An interesting Fräulein Maria ends up with Christopher Plummer. Actually, that really happened. Maria von Trapp married, or Maria, whatever her last name was, married von Trapp. These are real people that brought their kids to America and they sang all over the country. All right. Um, so let's go to verse nine and look at it in some detail. It says, widows, a widow must do something. I put it in red because it's an imperative in Greek. A widow will be enrolled under the following conditions. Now, this is interesting. Uh, my English translation says, put a widow, she's to be put on the list, or you could say enrolled. She's one of the ones that we designate as part of this receiving care from the church, meaning we're taking care of her, her, live, her, her living. Think of it, it's your mother. She's 80. She's having trouble getting around. She doesn't admit how much trouble she's having getting around. Sorry, 85. <laughs> she's not quite ready to, uh, to concede. She's with George Jones. I don't need your rocking chair, right? But she's your mother and you see things about her she doesn't see about herself. And you, the children, are looking out for mom. And that, that delicate process, we've all, I've seen it so much here with you and in my life, we have to be there and, and it's family, it's family. And I don't want a stranger in my house. Okay, well, we're, we're gonna come over. And we're gonna introduce you to this stranger we've hired to help you. Now she's gonna be part of the household. And that conversation, sometimes you have to go with that. And that might be a better way than we're gonna give you to a, 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 an institution of total strangers that they're making $10,000 a month, but you're not getting $10,000 of care a month out of that institution. But however you do it, it's the kids looking out for their mom. That's how to think about this. But notice that Paul doesn't say she may be enrolled. It doesn't say 
that the church might consider if it feels led to take care of these widows indeed. It says they will be. And it's a third person Greek imperative. It's one of my most interesting things to, because English doesn't do that. We don't do third person imperative. We learn in second grade or fifth grade or whenever. Imperative mood, we didn't call it the mood, but the imperative is I is this, or you are the subject, you go. The second person, we can't do third person imperatives in English, but you can do it in Greek. And it means that the speaker wants this person to do this. Paul wants Timothy to ensure that this church provides for these widows. That's the idea of the volitional nature of the imperative in Greek. A widow is to be enrolled under these following conditions is my paraphrase because he then starts making a list right here uh, in, in the first word after uh, to, to enroll. First of all, not less than 60 years old. Not less than 60 years old is the first condition. And so it is an economic category, but it is also an age situation. Now think back in this time when everyone is camping out, even if you live in a house, it's like camping out. If it's, if it's moist outside, when you wake up, it's moist inside. The, the, the humidity in the air is all over your stuff. I mean, just, have you ever been camping? These people had, and uh, <laughs> that's, how, that's how life was. It's hard to imagine. But um, 60 years old was the idea that Paul just grabs in the inspiration of the Spirit to say that when someone is approaching that time when they can't do as much for themselves, it's toward retirement. And I want to keep emphasizing it's economic, but it's not only economic. Having been a one-man woman is the Greek of the Apostle Paul. Henos is one, Andros is man, Gune is woman, a one-man woman. If I want to just put it into the interlinear. A one-man woman. It's exactly the language Paul uses for the, um, the elders and deacons in chapter 3. A one-woman man is a one-man woman. And so how you interpret chapter 3 on this is probably how you're going to interpret chapter 5 on this. Does this mean that you can't be, be, be widowed and remarried because you had a second wife? I don't think that's what it means. Does it mean that if your wife abandons you, then you can't remarry, have someone raise the kids with you? I don't think that's what it means. I think it means that you are a one woman man. And I think that therefore this, there's a legalism that creeps in about this where people will say, well, I, my wife died and then I wanted to remarry. So like Paul says, so I can't be an elder anymore or I can't No, that's, that's not what, that's absurd. That's absurd. What he's saying is that the person's faithful in their marriage. He's saying that the person is uh, not an adulterer. He's saying the person is not, have, has an abandoned a family and then married again as an adultery. This is saying that it's someone who is um, faithful and it certainly prohibits polygamy or in this case, polyandry. You say, well, that's not, you know, polygamy is a problem throughout the Bible. And the Bible doesn't prohibit it except in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, when elders are to be only married to one woman, you can say, ah, is that what it's talking about? Well, you read through the Old Testament and ask some missionaries that have been to cultures that don't understand polygamy, or uh, I'm sorry, monogamy. And it is, it is a, a big thing. You can say, well, maybe in Egypt or maybe in Iraq where they've got four wives. That's not that far away anymore. And it's going on now. And I've met guys with multiple wives in Iraq. And they say you have to eat the date palm, uh, dates from the date palm to be married to more than one woman. 
It's a joke they have over there. You can't do it. You people over in America, it's not hot enough. You have to be hot to be, there's to be hot uh, temperature in the, in the country you live in to be vigorous, to be married to more than one woman. That's cultural there. Well, this applies. One woman, one man, Genesis 2, God's design, broken uh, at your peril with, uh, for example, uh, Abraham and Hagar. And I would say Jacob and, uh, and, and even Rachel. But that's, a, that's controversial. Nevertheless, a widow will be enrolled under the following conditions, not less than 60 years old, having been a one-woman man, one-man one woman, sorry, <laughs> a one-man woman, in good works being born witness. That's not good English, but that's the passive voice that she is, martyreo is to bear witness. That's why we got the Holy Spirit, according to Luke 24, so that we would bear witness for Christ. There is a witness about her. So being born witnesses that brings out the passive voice, I might have smoothed that out a little bit. And the English in the New American Standard does. It says, uh, in verse 10, it says, having a reputation for good works. That's a paraphrase of this passive voice to have been born witness to. And it's a present tense. It's some, it, it goes on. She has a good witness to those outside. This sounds a lot like the elders list has a good witness for, from those outside. Well, this doesn't necessarily mean outside, it's just that she has a reputation for good works. The word for good here I like to bring out is kalos, K-A-L-O-S. And you'll have the other word for good works here, agathos, and they're used interchangeably. But they mean a subtle difference in where the words come from. Kalos is the word for attractive, good like attractive. Agathos is good of moral or intrinsic value. God is both. The works that God approves of are both. And I've told you before, when you say kalos, good works, you're saying that's a beautiful piece of work. That's attractive. I like what I see. It's kind of the, the sense. Agathos is good of intrinsic value. They're interchangeably used here for the works that God wants us to do. But I just want you to see it's God has both art and science in this. Good works being born witness. What do the people see about her beautiful works? I think this is the list of the good works. She's brought up children. These are all heiress tense, all completed sort of portrayals externally, like completed um, past actions. She's brought up children. If she has shown hospitality. Zenodokeo, uh, to give to the outsider. Um, if she's shown hospitality, if she's washed the saints' feet, where did Paul get that strange thing? We'll have the ladies forward with the pitchers who are going to go row by row and wash all of our feet. No, that's not what's happening here. But where did he get this idea? Does anyone doubt that the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ is very well aware of the work of the Lord Jesus in washing the disciples' feet and saying, do this for one another. And by the way, it's a figure there, it's a figure here. We do not get a third ordinance from Jesus in John 13 to go around with pitchers and towels. But if ever some of you need a pitcher and, and someone put on a towel and a pitcher to wash your feet, then we're supposed to do it for one another. Or whatever the need is to care for one another. If those in distress she has aided, um, this is a word, flebominois, 
phlebomenois here in the contextual form is related to phlipsis, the word for tribulation. People that are having trouble. You know, let's be cynical just for a second. Be shrewd as serpents on this for a second. You could easily take advantage of this kind of person. Oh, I just need some help. Woe is me. I am so needy and I'm going to find somebody to latch onto that's one of these kinds of people. We're getting a profile of a Christian. A profile of someone that selflessly loves the other. Love one another just as I've loved you. Well, Jesus, how have you loved me? You gave me everything that I needed, including eternal life. And you did it self-sacrificially. So this is a person that loves as Christ has loved. You could say, well, so we as Christians are easily taken in. We help people that are lying to us about their needs. Maybe. It's God's money. And God knows if we're being lied to. So when you're being fleeced, don't worry about it. We have to be shrewd, but we have to, and we have to be careful with our resources, but uh, we're not criminal investigators. And so we are, we're open-handed and we help those in need. And if you find out that you're taken for a ride and the person was a fraud, that's God. That's on God. He's got you. And it's his money and it's his resources and it's his time. And what you're doing is to please him anyway. So that's the answer to people that won't be charitable, that won't be open-handed, that say, well, you know, they, they're a grifter. You don't know if someone's a grifter until you know. And so guess what I've discovered? This kind of ministry takes time. It takes the right kind of maturity that, well, it takes maturity to know that, yeah, we can be, be, be lied to. There are lying people, lots of them, most of them, and you have to watch close. And so we're not going to just throw God's money away. Let me give you an example of this. Someone that's in desperate need will call and say, we need help with, uh, with our electric bill for the month. Will you please give us cash for the electric bill? We will never give cash for the electric bill. We never will. Well, why not? Because I don't know the person and I don't know the electric bill situation and I don't know why there's no money for the electric bill, but we might and often have paid the electric bill. Well, why won't you just give them cash? Because I don't know if that cash is going to go into that person's arm. They get a bad dose of heroin with a lot of fentanyl and it kills them. I don't know. And I'm, I'm not responsible if it does, even if I do give them cash, but I, I'm trying to help. And I don't think it's helpful to take somebody that's, that's lying or an addict or something and giving them something that they're going to hurt themselves with. So I will be a little shrewd. I'll be careful. So we don't give cash. We give help. And it, takes, it costs money to give help. And it takes time. And that's hard. Now, does that mean that we've never given someone cash? No, we've, give, we've often given cash to someone that needed help or a check, but we're watching. And it's, it's always with that little prayer, Father, it's for you, it's yours. Help this person. We wanna be useful to you. But that's what this lady is. She's this kind of person that helps the people in distress. If to every good work she has devoted herself. See, Paul's summarizing in this list. He's summarizing a, a profile of the person. This is the lady who in your church family is on the list. 
And so my theological question I want to ask is, well, what if she failed in some of these, but she's repented? <laughs> and the answer is, what, look at the passage. This isn't just economic. It's economic and spiritual. It's qualifications that mean there's an expectation of some level of performance. And I, I want to say that the way Paul made the list, there are three main qualifications, and one got expanded on quite a bit. The first is age. She needs to be beyond, um, beyond childbearing, I think would be 60 is what he's saying. And be, basically beyond the problem of, well, I might want to get married, which is what he's going to get into in a second. She has been successful in her marriage if she's been married. She's been a good wife. As far as it depended on her, she's been faithful to her husband and served the Lord in that sense. And she has a reputation for good works, which we just described in some detail. This is the description of a woman that needs to be on the list. And you say, well, this list isn't just uh, widow care then. This is, this is widow care for somebody that's making devotions, prayer, entreaties to God in prayer night and day. And what does this person look like? Well, it's this Christian woman that uh, is now a ward of the church who's also a product of the church. She's a ward of the church but she's a product of the word of God and a, an exponent of what the local church is called to be. And, you know, you can imagine someone who comes uh, after a life of profligacy, who lives wantonly and then doesn't have anyone or anything and needs help, help. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not popular in some circles, but it should be. It is here to talk about the consequences of folly economically, the economic consequences of folly. We read about this in Proverbs quite a bit. If you are a fool, you can expect to end up with less than you need. That's how it is. If you refuse to work, if you, if you fall asleep between uh, you, your hand goes into the dish, but you're too, too lazy to pull it back out and eat, fall asleep between like bites because you're so lazy that I just need someone to put it in my mouth for me. If you're like this, you can expect to be impoverished and a little folding of the hands, a little resting of the eyes and your poverty comes on you like a thief. If we go to the ant, remember like, like this, this is in Proverbs six. This is, this is what the Bible says about labor and, and, and sluggardness and, and wisdom and folly. And there is a cause and effect relationship. Now watch, watch what I mean by cause and effect. It's so important to get this. Watch this. I'm not saying that poor people have been lazy. I'm not saying that someone that ends up on the list is lazy. In fact, Paul says, this is somebody that's a hard worker for the Lord. I'm saying that lazy people can expect to end up in poverty. Do you hear the difference? There, go with cause and effect, not effect back to cause. That's Job's friends. Well, Job, you're suffering, so it must be that God has, has something against you. The Bible says, don't do that. Do not speculate about that. You can't work the logic in that direction. The logic is that if I am a fool, I can expect the rod. If I don't get the rod, then uh, God has shown mercy or, he's, or just wait because it's coming. You're in that few seconds before the rod strikes. If I see somebody suffering, I don't go, well, they must have disobeyed God, Hebrews 13, Proverbs 3 style. No, no, no. If I see someone who has disobeyed God as a believer, 
and then I see the rod, I, and I, I say in Hebrews 13, that person has a heavenly father who's correcting him back to the path. See, we, we start with the cause and then go to the effect. You don't start with the effect and then try to reason out the cause. I hope you all get this. It's, it's nasty. It's nasty when Christians do this. Horatio Spafford, one of his, one of his, the only negative things that I've read about him was the way they were treated by their church in Chicago after the loss of their children. They lost, they had more than one disaster in their lives and they were blamed for it by their church. You must have done something. If you've lost children in this fire, you've lost children in the, the shipwreck. It must have been, what have you done? And it's hard to be part of a local church that thinks that of you. <laughs> you know what happens, right? When, um, when someone treats you that way in your local church family, uh, you leave. That's the cause. And then the effect was you're gone because that's just stupid. And like, there's a whole book of the Bible written about this, about not speculating about people suffering in, in the book of Job. All right. So, so what I'm saying is there is a, an expectation that if you're a fool, that you will have the consequences of folly. And that includes poverty. That includes suffering. That includes God's rod. And if you are a person of a lifetime of foolishness who at retirement time when you can't chew the leather anymore and you need help and you don't have resources that's a case where paul is not even addressing here he's talking about you people here you who have served the lord who are going to wash the disciples feet who are going to live your lives to please god and so is there a message in this for young girls you better believe it Part of it is that when mama is old enough where she can't take care of herself, I'm going to be strong. And I'm going to help take care of her. Another part of the message is when I'm in that situation, I want to be, have been the kind of person that God says needs to be a representation of the family and therefore is cared for by the family. It's both. Most of the questions I get about marriage are for people that uh, the answer is serve the Lord in the situation you find yourself. And I'm sorry that you have yourself in a very naughty situation uh, with a K, naughty situation, very tough situation. I'm sorry that this is messed up, but we're not fishing here. We can't just cut the line and, uh, and remove the snarl and then start over. You got you to fish with the, line, with, the, with, with the snarl that you've got. You got to deal with this. Most of the questions I get in marriage would be resolved with a time machine. And you go back and don't do this to yourself. But since you have... You have to abide. You have to deal. That's the Bible on marriage. Well, once you're 70 or 80 or whatever it is, and you need help and you've been a fool, this passage isn't talking to you. In fact, it's saying these people aren't on the list. Will the church give alms? Will we take care of the poor? We do. But that's not this. First of all, these qualifications go beyond support for the elderly. They have to because they take into account the elderly's moral and spiritual lifestyle. This goes beyond support for the elderly, but it does involve it. Second, it is mutual care. The church is caring for the elderly widows and the elderly widows are caring for the church. It's mutual. Remember that entreaties and prayers night and day. Think of Anna who's been this, she's glorified in Luke one as this widow who stayed a widow for decades. I think she's a widow for like 60 years or something. She's this very elderly woman who's been a widow almost all her life. And she has been making entreaties and prayers night and day the whole time. She's glorified and honored by God 
because of her faithfulness and the great honor that concludes her life as she gets to see the Lord Jesus, see the salvation of Israel. And that's very important in the, in the story that we have in Luke 1, the way that's presented. But it honor, God honors widows who have been faithful, and that's what you have, I think, a good example of in Luke 1. All right. Third, the, the qualifications should apply to every elderly woman in a local church. Now, I've talked about those on the margin that they were fools and now they're not. And that's, you know, that's a tough, that's, that's the gray area of this. This is really cut and dried. Everything we've read through all of Paul's epistles to this point has set you up to walk not according to the flesh, but by the spirit. Everything we've talked about has prepared you to say, this is the kind of life I'm going to live. I'm going to be this kind of person. And the way you get to that, listen, the way you get to be that kind of person is today. You don't, you don't all of a sudden flip a switch and then you don't struggle with the sin nature anymore or, or there's no higher life that I'm going to really feel it and then Keswick myself into it, the, the better, higher Christian. That's not how it works. You're not going to reach this level, this plateau of holiness where you're not struggling with your sin nature anymore. But every day you're going to devote yourself to God and you're about his work and his purposes. And you're going to say, my life is not mine, it's yours because I've been bought with a price. You're going to go back to the cross and remember the blood of Christ. And this is going to be the life you're going to live because you're going to think this way every single day. And so the honor of being on this list, this enrollment where the church is providing for you like they provide, like it provides for the elders the honor of this, this position carries with it the responsibility of care for the family. And if, it's, if, if only in prayer. And think about what happens if we get someone on the list that doesn't follow through, that doesn't carry forth who we are, who the Lord is calling us to be. Someone that isn't living that consistent Christian life. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm speaking against that. I'm talking about a consistent Christian walk. Someone that walks by the spirit and so does not generally fulfill the lust of the flesh. Someone who generally is characterized by the fruit of the spirit. Someone who as a lifestyle is abiding in Jesus Christ. If we're talking about this kind of person who is therefore bearing much fruit. What happens if you have someone that is not this way and they're on the rolls? There's a defilement of the witness for the family. And that's where Paul goes next. He shows you why this has to be this way in verses uh, 11 and following. He says, now younger widows refuse. Notice I put it in red because again, it is a present imperative. They can't be on the list. Younger widows. Now, Anna was a widow at 20 something or younger and widowed forever for the rest of her life. And so she's an interesting outlier, but that's a different administration, a different situation. She's just an example of a widow that's faithful. But younger widows refuse. Why? Because of God's design in our lives, because of our hormones, because of the Christian life that involves marriage and reproduction. It involves marriage and its blessings because that's an important part of life that God has designed. And it is an avenue. Listen, the sex avenue is one of Satan's greatest, if not his greatest way of attacking us. 
I say it because when you look up the passages on Satan, when you look up the word Satan in your concordance or devil, usually there's sex involved in the passage somewhere where it's a problem. 1 Corinthians 7, you're giving the devil an opportunity if you deny each other sexual rights in marriage. Cutting someone off is inviting the devil to have, a, have an opportunity to destroy someone. And that's what we're talking about here. Younger widows, you refuse. For when they are consumed with sensual desires, we have a challenging translation here, and I'll talk you through some of the interpretive options. When they're consumed with sensual desires that distract them away from Christ, they will want to marry. Now, it may be that Brother Augustine or Augustine, depending on where you're from, would say, oh, no, no, no. Sex is always lust. Sexual desire is always part of your sinful desires. And, and the only value to sexual engagement is procreation. And when we would say, well, let's read the Song of Solomon, and then he would Christologically misinterpret it and miss the point of God's blessing of marriage back from Genesis 2. Sex is the blessing, one of the blessings of marriage. And it's a picture of the covenant of marriage. But I want you to notice that the idea of the consumed with sexual desires comes from a compound word in Greek that only occurs here. Katastereo would be the, the dictionary form for it. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Katastreinao. Katastreinao. That would be the, the, the contract verb there. What is this word? Okay, so kata, you cut that off to see where it came from. Streneo, streneo. That this word means to, to, to be given to wantonness, <laughs> to profligacy, or to sexual desire. And the kata sort of intensifies it. And so this is saying the person is going to feel sexual urges or be taken, taken away with sexual urges. It's a big challenge. And all the adults in the room, I hope you understand it's a challenge, it's a, it's a problem that needs boundaries. You have to set conditions on this one because of our weaknesses in this area of life. It's a big problem, for example, the internet and how most, the, the majority, or let's say how this, the most money on the internet is made through this problem of being carried away by sexual urges. Now here's what, here's what we're saying. When that happens and it is against Christ, doesn't mean sexual urge is bad. It means that if you have no outlet for sexual desire, it can become lust and it can become sin. You understand? Sex isn't bad. It's a blessing of marriage. But if there's no marriage or if it's not being fulfilled in marriage, there's your sin. And it starts here, Jesus says, with looking at the person with lust in Matthew chapter 5. But here's the thing. This person is consumed or driven by sensual desires, that's sex, sexual desires, and then with an ablative that separates you from Christ. The genitive case has two functions, two key functions in the five case system in Greek, and it can be the of or the away from or the against. And this is what we call an ablative use. Some, I think British would call it ablative use, but it's ablative, I say ablative, and it's the, it's the separating one. It's the away from Christ. So the sensual urge is separating you from, from the Lord. Why? Because it's gone to sin. Because the, the, the urge is there, but there's no fulfillment for it. And the person is not disciplining herself. That's the problem. And so it's a separation from fellowship with the Lord. That's the idea. It's just the problem of sexual sin. 
That's my interpretation of what's going on here. Again, Augustine would say, no, sexual urge is sin. Now, it can't be, since it's God's blessing of marriage. But it is, hopefully all of you understand, one of the key ways that Satan gets hold of us because he's using a legitimate appetite against us. Same with food, same with drink, same with sex. And a legitimate appetite okay, taken into sin is the destruction of your fellowship with God. That's the idea. And so the person is distracted away from Christ by this or, or even separated in fellowship from Christ. And, but I'd say distracted from their, their devotion to him because they want to marry. This echoes what we have again in first Corinthians seven about, you know, widows. I wish you could be as I am because, and stay unmarried because you can serve the Lord. Because if you get married, you want to serve your husband or you want to serve your wife. But it's better to spend your time serving the Lord. So this is a person that is uh, committed to celibacy, but the younger widows are going to struggle with this, and it's been a problem. Now, here's the occasional side of this. There could be a problem in Ephesus. We don't know, but it's something that Paul apparently has seen because he's going to describe, and whether he saw it or not, it's inspired by the Spirit. He's going to describe what happens. They incur judgment because the first faith they've nullified. Now, most English translations will say, in verse 12, incurring condemnation because they've set aside their previous pledge. Like they're on a list and they've made some sort of vow to get on the list. And that's an interesting topic. I struggle with the topic of making vows. The apostle Paul makes a vow and then has his hair cut and stuff. And I struggle with that part of his life in Acts. Because what we have in the scriptures about your yes being yes, your no being no, and don't swear by heaven or by earth or your head, but, but, but be straightforward, be honest. And what you say is your commitment. Your word is your pledge. That's generally how we approach this. So I struggle with calling this some sort of vow. Now I know it's, I'm also reacting. I'm a, I'm a child of the reformation and all the religiosity and legalism of the vows that people have made in various ways that are contrary to the word of God, like those that forbid marriage so that the pastor can't be the husband of one wife. That's such an absurdity to me historically. And they make a vow not to marry. Well, that's a Nazarite vow. Well, hey, no, it's not. And you can't obey the scriptures if your pastors aren't husbands of one wife. And you can say, well, what about bachelors? And that's an interesting category, interesting topic we could dis discuss. But the norm, the, the pattern is a, a married man. The rabbis, interestingly, according to one of the Mishnah, they have to be married. They have to be of a certain age. They have to be married so that they can encourage and, and deal with, with marital issues. They encourage judgment because the first faith they have nullified. I don't think that we would translate this vow because the word is pistis. It means faith. That's a flexible word. It has a lot of nuance in how the author can use it. Faith is the believing. It's believing. It's faith. You can say, I don't like that definition, but you should spend some time on it because it means to trust or to believe. You say, well, those aren't the same thing. Well, we're now in the shade of, we're in a moment of angle on this. You're shooting the bullet through the same hole if you're fighting over if it means to trust or to believe. No, because belief is different. It can, they're shades of the same idea. And I think if you study philosophy and, and get into that too much, uh, especially into epistemological philosophy, you'll find that you know a lot about uh, not very much. What I'm saying is, 
Faith is the believing in someone else or it is the being the person that is believed. It is either the trust that you, ex you extend to someone else, like when we trust in Christ, or it is the faithfulness or that which is believed. Pistis is used both these ways. And you have to ask each time, are you the object of faith? Or are you the faith toward the object? Which one is it? I hope I'm not losing you. Are you the object of faith? Or are you the, the one expressing the faith? Since Paul is writing this, and since faith is kind of an important word in what Paul says, I find it difficult to just jump to pledge or oath here. But you could. It could be their former faith or commitment to be faithful to, do, to, to stay um, on the list. But in context, just look at this. They're consumed with sexual desire away from Christ. They want to marry. And that, that could also be more than, like, less than marriage, but we'll say marry. There's a judgment because they have nullified the first faith. I don't think it means they're going to hell, but I think it means they've broken something that they have formerly committed to. And I think it has to do with trusting in God. Now, again, my interpretation is not necessarily the, the right interpretation. I don't know. There is a right one. I'm not really strong on this. I hope you understand. And, and I don't think anyone is. But to make this into an oath or a pledge that a woman makes to get on the list that's a challenge to me. That's a challenge, but that's what, that's what people will do. And then they'll invent this whole oath system. And, um, and here's the thing, when you commit your way to the Lord and trust also in him that he'll do it. If you make your life about him, if you say, this is where life is, and I'm going to commit myself to his service, then you need to stick, stick with it and don't take your hand off the plow. But I think what he's saying here is that they have nullified their first faith. They, the, by, by going here. And, um, and so it's almost like there's an office. It's almost like there is this role that they now have that when they leave that role, it's a break with the family. It's a break with the witness. And that's why you have to say, this is more than just, um, taking care of elderly women. This is the elderly women now involved in the offerings of the church, um, for, the service they'll render. Then at the same time also, I know you're like, that's a lot of words, but ama is at the same time. And then de is also translated then here. And then Kai also. Then at the same time also, these women that want to marry because they have been consumed with sexual desire, um, they will learn to be lazy. Monthano, to learn to be lazy. Your Bible might translate that idle, but idle isn't really smacking us like it needs to. This word is lazy for us. And the widows on the list are, are laborers. They're just doing the work that they now are capable of doing. But these women that are on the list and don't have to do anything to provide a living for themselves are now, well, what do we do? They're idle. They're idle hands or the devil's handiwork or whatever. I hate that phrase, but They'll go, they'll learn to be lazy going around from house to house. And not only lazy, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things they should not. Paul often thinks that women have trouble with their mouths. But James tells us that we all have trouble with our mouths. And it's a maturity thing. And the mature person controls the tongue to lie us, to be mature or complete. Not perfect, but mature. 
And when you run off at the mouth, you're demonstrating immaturity. Do you know what I mean in the passage about younger women? It's a maturity problem. And it is also a feminine problem. It's a woman problem. We talk about women problems and people start getting biological. Well, let's talk about the corpus callosum and the use of language in a woman's brain. You're different women. You're different. And it's, it's a power that God has given you. And so since you have such a massively powerful and sharp sword, God is constantly telling you, watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. Don't run your mouth in a way that would be unedifying or destructive to someone else. And I know you're like, pastor, you too. And I should, and I agree. And that's true. But we're talking about women here. And there's something special about the power of women and speech. Gossips and busybodies busybodies talking about things they should not. So this is the problem of, of women. And so what needs to happen? See, this is saving the elders or the pastors from having to go after these women that are out of control and bad examples, having to bring them in and rein them down and counsel them because they are untethered from authority. See, that's now it's on the elders to do for them what their husbands are responsible to do for them and say, Hey, you shouldn't say that to them. See, it's a, there's a problem of authority here. And I know that that's unpopular, but you should check out Genesis chapter three, verse 16, and compare it with Genesis chapter four and the sin crouching in the door whose desire is for you. There's a problem in our sinfulness and authority structures have been designed to help us restrain that. And so this is a woman that is not married and therefore not under the headship of a husband. And so a young woman with all that power who no longer has to work for her living is free to have trouble. And we're in Ephesus and there's a problem in Ephesus. So I think we should all take this to heart. We should all humble ourselves before God and let him, let him rein us in where we need to be reined in. And we need to say that this is a protection. Notice we're setting conditions. Is he saying that these women are unbelievers? He's not. Is he saying that they're free from the temptations of their sin nature? No, he's saying those are still there. So we have structures in place that help us not express those tendencies through personal sin. And one of those is headship in marriage. So verse 14, therefore, I want young widows, the young ones, he says, and he means widows to marry, to bear children, to manage house, to give no opportunity to the opponent for the sake of reproach or reviling. The person who stands against the anti-kemai, the person that is, that is uh, an opponent to you. I want bulamai. This is what Paul prefers. I want young widows to marry. Well, does this take her off the widows list later because she was now the, husband, the wife of two husbands? One died and then she married another one? No. In context, that can't be what he's doing. If you obey what God's word directs, then you're going to, to not pursue the, the nunnery as a 25-year-old. You're going to say, um, for the economic needs, for the headship, for the things that God describes of marriage, then, then that's, the, that's the norm. Does this mean that women are not called to celibacy? Jesus says in Matthew 19 that some are called. Some people are called to this 
And it's, some are made eunuchs and others become eunuchs for the kingdom. And, and if, if you can bear this responsibility, then do so. But Paul is talking pragmatically here about the norm. Most of us are not called to this. So the widow's list is not available is the point. We're not going to materially supply wantonness in our offerings and the offerings to God and how we manage them. So I want the young widows to marry and that generally carries children that, that comes forth with bearing children. Doesn't mean contraception is evil or wrong or anything like that. Doesn't mean that sex has to issue in children. It means that this is what normally happens is that people get married and then they will have children if they're of childbearing age. And this does not also teach you that women should be having children up to the age of 60. That's not what it means. And people will get all kinds of goofy ideas and start blogs about, you know, after 50 motherhood and stuff. And, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't do that. And, and, uh, and I don't think you have to consult your doctor for what he thinks or she thinks would be best for you either. But I think that, that, that what he's saying is the norm is that younger women will marry again and they will bear children and they will manage house. This is one of my favorite words. Where are my Greek readers here? That's oikos, O-I-K-O. You take off the S to add another word to it so you can jam it together. The S goes away, oikos, means house. And then D-E-S-P-O-T. And then you turn it into an an infinitive with the ending. Oiko, oikodespotain means to be the despot of a house. The oikos despot, the person that rules, manages, governs the house. To keep house, I've translated to manage house. The oikos despot. Over lunch, gentlemen, please resist the urge to call her oikos despot. (laughs) But it's a beautiful phrase. And those of you who know what a home is and live in a home or have been in a home, you know that this is work, this is energy, this is effort, this is labor, this can be done by woman. It is a woman's calling, makeup, it's all, it's the most wonderful thing in the world is a home. But you have to have oikos despot to to make it happen. And C.S. Lewis talks about this. I'll pick this up next hour in in, uh, Mere Christianity. He talks about the unpopularity of headship and marriage and how it is, it is the Bible's way. But if you want to hear more about that, you're gonna have to come back for next time. Father, we thank you for the privilege to think through these things about our responsibilities to our families, about our responsibilities to you and how we'll live our lives. And father, this little snapshot of the way the the household will function about how the church family takes care of its own, but that each of us, we must take care of our, our individual responsibilities before we throw it on the, the greater body. Thank you for these principles that we've been able to see. Father, the challenges we've received this morning, help us rise to them and not shy away from them. Father, let our women, all of them, be women that would qualify for this list should they need it. Father, we pray for them and their needs and their families and their children and the children's sanctification and growth, that they would be believers toward their parents, help them all grow so that they can live this way as well. Father, we'll take care of all that you give to us. We'll use the resources you've given us and we'll glorify you with every step. And so we ask it in Jesus name. We all said, amen.